episode 58 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Chris Lambert. And I'm Josh Havens. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. And today we are going to be hearing a message from Josh Havens. That's right, our very own Josh Havens. But before we get into that message, I want to tell you guys real quick about how the podcast has changed over the last few weeks. If you're a longtime listener, you've obviously realized that we have gone from breaking up our conversations with guests into four or five chapters down to just one entire episode. So instead of one 15 to 20 minute episode that fits nicely into your commute, sorry about that. If you really enjoyed that style, we're doing one hour episodes all over again. However, Josh and I loved doing our follow-up conversations where we reflected on what our guests have taught us and how that those lessons have played out throughout the week and or, or weeks sometimes from when we've done those podcasts. And so instead of releasing those as podcasts, we still wanted to do them, but we're filming them and putting them on YouTube now. So if you're still interested in how our guests' conversations have changed our lives, please head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe and check those out. We really enjoy making them. They're a lot of fun. And again, it's just a really fun time to reflect on how our guests' words have influenced us and how the Spirit has used them to change our life. So like I said, today we are going to be hearing a message from Josh Havens. Josh's day job, he works at Globe University paying the bills by working as their lead application developer. But because he is a sucker for discipleship, he has decided to co-found Daily Growth Discipleship to bring you guys podcast tools and resources to help you live a lifestyle of discipleship. We truly cannot get enough of this stuff. In addition to all of that stuff, Josh is a husband and father to three young boys who are cute and wild and rough as boys should always be. He's got a giant dog and a little tiny dog, and they balance each other out great, running around the house, being crazy. <laughs> anyway, just having a little fun, a little bit of the lighter side. Guys, you're really going to enjoy this message from Josh Havens about how God has been working in his life to show him who he is as a child of God. Step number one in the five steps of how to create a lifestyle of discipleship is to know your identity. Because without knowing who we are in Christ, we are unable to make any progress in our journey with him. But here's the good news. Christ loves you and he seeks you even in your brokenness. And that's going to be a major theme of this sermon that you're about to hear from Josh, is that you are broken and yet God still loves you. Your identity is not defined by your brokenness and yet he seeks you in it. Brokenness leads us to feel shame, deep shame about who we are. And yet Christ comes to us in our moments of the deepest hurt and shame and he gives us a new identity. He wants to heal us. So if you're struggling, you're dealing with these issues right now, this message is for you. God loves you. It's almost cliche when you hear it, but think about each one of those three words. God loves you. You might be thinking, yeah, he does, but that's just who he is, right? Or maybe, yeah, but he doesn't like me. There's a lot of me that's still broken. I don't even like me. Or maybe you just don't believe it at all. I've met very few people who can hear the words, God loves you, 
and truly grab onto the implications of that statement. I'm still definitely working on it myself, but I'm beginning to catch a glimpse of something I can't and don't want to let go of. I'm either grasping at straws in what I'm going to say, or there's something here that can change the way that we live our lives. And I'm not talking about a salvation or a conversion experience. I'm talking about a life-changing realization that can even happen years or decades into your relationship with Jesus. For the next few minutes, I hope to find a way to make God's love for you a little more real. I hope to find a way to get that truth to move from something acceptable to you in your head and move it into something that is acceptable and that your heart embraces. Because when that starts to happen, your life and your purpose begin to change. It'll be more than just an extra spring in your step. It's a change that affects everything from the way that you go to sleep to the way that you eat lunch or the way that you boot up your computer in the morning. In biblical Hebrew, we find the word chesed, which is usually translated loving kindness or steadfast love. In Numbers 14, Moses pleads, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. This love from our Father is a patient love that will never end. And this love is demonstrated ultimately in Jesus. The way he came, lived, and died all demonstrate what it means to be loved by God. So I want to help you understand three truths about yourself right now. Really, they're three truths about God. And when you begin to grab hold of these truths, you'll probably spend the rest of your life trying to work out what it means to live in that reality. So here they are. Number one, God knows you are broken. Without the constant grace of God in everything, from the moment you're born to the day you die or Christ returns, you are broken in one way or another. Number two, God loves you in your brokenness. This is an incredible mystery. But this truth is incredible as well. And finally, number three, three, God has called you with a purpose. And that purpose can only reach its full potential when you fully embrace the first two truths. God knows that you're broken. Let's take a look at this first truth. In John chapter 8, we find a story of Jesus confronted by others with a woman who's caught in the act of adultery, and she's now publicly being shamed. Starting in verse 3, it reads, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus, however, bent down, and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, 
they went away one by one, beginning with the older, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. John wrote his gospel to give you a glimpse of Jesus, the real flesh and blood Jesus. Because when you see him in all the goodness and steadfast love he demonstrates, you're drawn to believe that he really is God. Like Jesus said, if you see me, you see God. So here we have a picture of Jesus, the revelation of God himself. And what do we find in this scene? It's the same God, the same God to whom Moses prayed, pardon us according to, your great, to the greatness of your steadfast love. Now keep this at the front of your mind, because we're going to go deep for just a minute here, and it may be a little uncomfortable. In their book, Does God Really Like Me? Jeff and Sid Holsclaw argue that the root of all sin is shame. When Eve was having her conversation with the serpent in Genesis 3, the temptation wasn't an overt temptation to disobey God as if she somehow naturally desired to be a rule breaker. It was instead a jab intended to shame her. The serpent points out, you will be like God. In other words, you're not like God now. You're not as important as him. You're not as valuable as him. You're not as wise as him. You are not enough. Now, all of a sudden, the fruit isn't just a way to break God's rules. It's a way to cover the pain that shame produced. When I was nine years old, I was invited to stay over at a friend's house and to stay the night. It was his birthday, and several of us were going to see a movie together. When I walked in the door, his mom told him, Josh was here. He came running down the hall and stopped as soon as he saw me and said, Oh, Josh Havens. I was not the Josh he thought I was. He was excited that another Josh in our group was coming, but not as much about me. In that group of friends, I was always the younger one trying to fit in with the rest of the group. And experiences like this only serve to reinforce that I wasn't enough to fit in. So to fix that, I would do anything to fit in and make myself feel valued by the group, even if it meant doing things like telling dirty jokes or acting in ways that I knew I shouldn't. I felt ashamed that I wasn't enough, and so my behavior became my way of covering that pain. By the way, parents, when you struggle to understand why your kids do what they do, Look for the shame they may be experiencing. Shame and the fear of rejection drive us to do incredible things out of self-preservation. Even as an adult right now, I do things I wouldn't normally do out of a fear I won't be accepted. I do things like that even with my wife Alicia and with Chris, who's also on this podcast quite a bit. Uh, And if you want to see this kind of thing happen in person, Next time you're at a a church gathering with a bunch of pastors or, or other ministry leaders, 
Ask them how things are going at their church or in their project or whatever it is that they're doing. Nine times out of 10, when I've had this conversation myself, it ends with one or probably both of us making sure that the other person knows just how good things are going for us. That really things have never been better. God's blessing the ministry. God's doing great things through the projects. And uh, we've got challenges, sure. But yeah, overall, things are great. We want to cover that shame. And so our church reports, our ministry, ministry newsletters, the things that we tell the outside world around us, uh, those things become an opportunity to make sure that we don't feel the pain of failure, especially if our livelihood is tied to people accepting us. Especially if our livelihood is tied to people accepting us. A few years ago, I planted a house church. It never really took off, though. There were several times I would meet with the other church planters or pastors in the area around me, and the nine-year-old me would come bounding back to the forefront of my mind to remind me, be sure you do something they'll like so that they'll like you and accept you. And so despite the failure that church plant was, I put on the face that said I was fighting the good fight, uh, we had great new families, things were tough, but yeah, overall, God's been good to us, and this has been a, a really successful church plant. After learning this lesson about my insecurity and brokenness, my next line of thinking with God went something like this. Okay, God, I get it. I'm broken. Thank you for your grace. Can we move on now to bigger and better things where my brokenness and my sin aren't part of the conversation anymore? In reality, though, over the last few years, God's steadfast love has been working tirelessly to make sure I realize the answer to this question is and always will be no. <laughs> My question misses the point of the lesson entirely. In wanting to get past my brokenness, what I wanted from God was a bit of healing so that I could then be perfect, so that in turn others would accept me because, you know, I no longer have any problems anymore. That solution, though, doesn't deal with the shame problem at the core of who I thought I was. A lot of us do things like this. We want to hurry past our sins, get the grace to cover them, and then be on our way. It's like those times when you do something really stupid, you look around to make sure that nobody saw you, and then you keep moving as if nothing ever happened. And we do the same exact thing in the Christian life all the time. We make mistakes. We look around to make sure that nobody saw us. Maybe we even confess or display some kind of vulnerability. Uh, then we move on like it never happened. All so that we can keep up the appearance that we really are like Jesus. Because if we're like Jesus, then we're okay. And if we're okay, then we have nothing to be ashamed of. This betrays. What we really believe, though, it betrays what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about God. It shows we don't believe we're worth loving and that our acceptance depends on our performance. We believe we have to hide our sin and shame because if anyone saw it at all, they would reject us. And if God saw it, he would reject us. It's the same feeling you get when you have one of those rapture scare moments and you tell yourself, I knew I wasn't good enough. I knew I didn't believe the right things. 
I knew I didn't get everything fixed the way it needed to be. This thinking, this way of living your life, which I'm coming to find is a problem for even the most successful followers of Jesus, is really a struggle to grasp our identity as beloved children of God. We don't understand who we are, and so we try to make others see that we're something special. We try to make ourselves believe we're someone special who has no flaws and who makes no mistakes. But the reality is we are broken. We are ashamed. We do make mistakes. We even lie to ourselves and say that we don't make mistakes. We tell ourselves and others we're better than we really are. And even this attempt to live is what Brendan Manning calls the imposter or the false self is a broken way of living. The more we try to fix it, the more we try to undo the wrongs and remove our false selves, the more brokenness we leave in our wake. Because, and here's the important point, the problem isn't the brokenness. We think the solution is to not be broken, but we miss the problem that caused it in the first place. We forget about the shame. We forget about our lack of security in who we are. And from what we see in Jesus, there's only one solution to that. We have to accept that God loves us like Jesus demonstrated. He doesn't just love some idealized version of us. He loves the broken us. Because it's not about fixing the brokenness, although he does want to do that. It's about being able to know we have a place to take our brokenness. Which leads us into the second truth. God loves you in your brokenness. Look back for a moment on the way that Jesus treated the woman caught in adultery. Look at the response he gives to her. Look at the way that he treats the Samaritan woman a few chapters earlier in John. Look at the way that he spends time with tax collectors, with prostitutes, and with other sinners. We get so worried that God will reject us because of our flaws and our yet-to-be-fully-mortified sinful nature. But everything Jesus did says that won't be the case. Chris and another friend of ours were talking the other day. When God saves you, the process of sanctification begins. The process of making you more like Jesus begins then. But it's like the first 0.1% of who you are. And we like to think that heaven is about getting the rest of the 99.9% taken care of before we die. Even if we know that to be false, and that salvation is by grace alone, a lot of times our actions say something different. We think there's some point we reach when we're living a good Christian life, when we no longer need to be ashamed. As I study church history, and I spend time walking with other Christians and having conversations with them, and as I look at my own life, I'm finding more and more that the closer we get to God, the greater our remaining sin and brokenness appears as well. It's like Einstein's analogy about human knowledge. He said, as our circle of knowledge expands, so does the circumference of darkness surrounding it. And the more we see that darkness, the more we're tempted to feel hopeless. 
But here's the cool thing, though. That fear and hopelessness disappear when we realize the point of the gospel and God's love for us isn't contingent on the remaining darkness. In fact, they don't even correlate. And here's the incredible mystery in all of this. God loves that broken you. He loves the woman who's even in the act of committing adultery. He loves the addict who's returning to his medicine of choice. He loves the pastor who's ashamed and tells everyone that their ministry has never been better. He loves the nine-year-old kid who can't handle being rejected and begins to do things he wouldn't normally do. Of course, he doesn't want the sin and shame and insecurity to continue in your life, but his primary concern, the one thing that he's really concerned about that we get from Jesus' life, is that he wants you to know you are loved and to be able to come to him in your brokenness. And it's your willingness to come to him in your brokenness rather than hiding it or wishing it would just go away that's the undoing of your shame. In fact, in Jesus, he came to you first. He went looking for you while you were broken. And even as you follow him in your brokenness, he simply says, come close to me. I love you. In a letter to a friend, uh, Brother Lawrence described it like this. To sum up, kind sir, I am sure that my soul has been with God for more than 30 years. I consider God my king, against whom I've committed all sorts of crimes. Confessing my sins to him and asking him to forgive me, I place myself in his hands to do whatever he pleases with me. And this king, who is full of goodness and mercy, full of chesed, doesn't punish me. Rather, he embraces me lovingly and invites me to eat at his table. He serves me himself and gives me the keys to the treasury, treating me as his favorite. He converses with me without mentioning my sins or my forgiveness. My former habits are seemingly forgotten. Although I beg him to do whatever he wishes with me, he does nothing but caress me. This is what living and being in his holy presence is like. And this is exactly what we find Jesus doing in John 8 when he says, Neither do I condemn you. By all accounts, this woman should have been justly executed. It was over for her, and Jesus lets her off completely, no questions asked. In Jesus, we see God's revelation of what justice actually is. It looks like being let off the hook for adultery. It looks like tax collectors and prostitutes hanging out with Jesus while he seems to be not too concerned with the fact that they were morally bankrupt people. In the end, it looks like the cross, where every single one of us was shown God's love for us in our brokenness. And that brokenness never quite fully dis disappears from our lives. And yet God still loves us. Hear me on this. I'm not preaching a gospel that allows you to get off the hook for whatever you've done and go on your way doing as you please. I'm preaching a gospel that says you are broken. Your shame drives you to do broken things. 
even things you aren't aware you're doing. But it also says you are the beloved. And all that God wants is for you to accept that and spend time with him. Because when you spend time with him, you see something in him that won't let go of you. It's captivating. It's beautiful. And it changes what you think about yourself and what you think about God. Brennan Manning said, The engaged mind, illuminated by truth, awakens awareness. The engaged heart, affected by love, awakens passion. May I say once more, this essential energy of the soul is not an ecstatic trance, high emotion, or a sanguine stance toward life. It's a fierce, longing for God, an unyielding resolve to live in and out of our belovedness. In other words, when you understand your brokenness and see your belovedness, you begin to act differently. And that's when the change in your life starts to occur. That's when you move from someone who hides after falling for the serpent's tricks in the garden into someone who runs back to your father because you know that you can always go to him with your weakness. You know that you can climb up in his lap or sit next to him, if you're too big for sitting in his lap, and hear him say, I sure am glad you're here. I love you. I would argue that God allows you to continue to struggle with what Brennan Manning and others call the imposter, the false self. We'll see he did that with the Apostle Paul in just a minute. This is the great news of the gospel that Jesus came to reveal. It's not about how much or how little you sin. It's about how much you trust God to take care of you, to be your loving father who welcomes you like the pig-filth-covered prodigal son or daughter you are. You can't erase your sinful nature or ever be clean enough. And when you accept that, you find yourself in a place of utter hopelessness. And it's in that place when the only hope meets you and says, I love you. Let me embrace you, sin and all. And as you stay close to me, knowing who you are as my child, secure in your identity as my own, your life will change. When this change happens and you embrace your brokenness and your belovedness, something incredible happens in your life. And that's where this third truth comes in. God has called you with a purpose. We don't know much about what happened to the woman in John 8 after Jesus sent her on her way. But we do know of other disciples who spent time with him who did things that were just as terrible, if not worse. The Apostle Paul is one of those. He was probably top on the list of people following Jesus who did some pretty bad things. One time when some people in Corinth attacked his ministry, he responded like this in 2 Corinthians 12. On my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me and harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that that it should leave me. But he said to me, and here's the important bit, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
in brokenness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, when I am broken, then I am strong. Think about this. We know how we act as ministers or church leaders when we're around other ministers. We talked about that earlier. Here's Paul's ministry. It's being attacked and torn down by these other people in Corinth. And a good portion of this letter is spent in defense of that ministry. But look at where he ends up. Look at what he concludes in his argument defending his ministry. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? Because it's not about what I do. It's not about my strengths. It's not about my ability to hide my shame. It's about knowing that stuff doesn't matter because I'm my father's child and my identity is in him. This combination does something incredible in our lives. It calls us to move out just like Jesus does over and over again. In his book, The Wounded Healer, Henry Nouwen wrote, The great illusion of leadership is to think that man can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. The more I study and learn about leaders and pastors, the more I come to find that many of us experience some form of desert in our lives and our ministries. Doesn't the author of Hebrews say that Jesus' own life experience allows him to sympathize with us? I'm learning more and more that God allows us to experience those places, those deserts, to shape us and form us. I'm not in a position to answer the question, why? There's other people who can do that way better than I can right now. But I do see that it happens and that often beautiful things come after we pass through those deserts. And as our passion for God motivates us to act from our belovedness, it comes out in a way that ministers to others. As human beings, God has given us an incredible ability to feel compassion for people around us, especially when it's toward a situation that we've experienced ourselves. It's why God commanded the Israelites to treat foreigners with kindness, because they knew what it was like to be a foreigner. John Piper describes ministers of the gospel as convalescing cripples in a hospital full of those people who can't walk. Henry Nouwen wrote, Through compassion, it's possible to recognize that the craving for love that people feel resides also in our own hearts. Think back to the nine-year-old wanting to be accepted. That the cruelty the world knows all too well is also rooted in our own impulses. Through compassion, we also sense our hope for forgiveness in our friends' eyes and our hatred in their bitter mouths. When they kill, we know that we could have done it. When they give life, we know that we can do the same. For a compassionate person, nothing human is alien. No joy and no sorrow, no way of living and no way of dying. Have you ever met one of those people you can talk to and you can just tell that there's something about them that breathes grace into your life? It breathes love into your life. You feel like you can tell them anything. And somehow, Jesus will come through and say, neither do I condemn you. 
I'm finding those kinds of people have been through some of the deepest, darkest, and driest places imaginable. They've looked at their own brokenness, but they've also felt in a very deep way their own belovedness. And now this is how they live their lives naturally. I think this is what God wants for each of us. We know we're called to be like Jesus, but sometimes I think we feel like we have to somehow take charge of our own sanctification and make it happen as soon as possible. Instead, God somehow uses our brokenness, our weakness, to give us a way to enter into the pain others are feeling as well. That pain and brokenness keep us from becoming conceited ourselves, just like Paul. We know that the shame, the insecurity, the morally bankrupt behavior they hold on to is also there in us in some way. But because we also know our belovedness, we can reach them with the good news of their belovedness. We can introduce them to the Father who wants to sit beside them just like he sits beside us. So what do we do with all this information? We're broken. We're beloved. We can reach others with our brokenness. But how then should we live? Live as those who have nothing to lose. All is grace in the first place. And in your brokenness, you have nothing anyway. Live as those who are in love with the one who loves us. When you love someone, you naturally begin to emulate that person. Do this not by straining to be like him, like you got to be in control of the change, but by putting your entire focus on knowing him and becoming infatuated with him. This produces the change. And finally, live as wounded healers. Live as convalescing cripples. If we're obsessed with the love and greatness of Jesus, you will begin to love and act in the world around you just like he did, as a healer of those who are broken. It sounds weird, but you really don't have to do anything else in life. All the pressures of ministry or church leadership or the Christian life, whatever it is, begin to fade away as you keep your eyes on the one who loves you. But this is one of the most difficult things to actually do. The shame that drives us always wants to come back to the surface, pleading with us to do something so that we won't die. In his memoir, written only a short while before his death, Brennan Manning concluded this, All that is not the love of God has no meaning for me. I can truthfully say that I have no interest in anything but the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If God wants it to, my life will be useful through my word and witness. If he wants it to, my life will bear fruit through my prayers and sacrifices. But the usefulness of my life is his concern, not mine. It would be indecent of me to worry about that. When you look at your life through this lens, you get up with a different purpose in the morning. It's no longer the full list of things you have to do. It's the excitement of pursuing the one who loves you no matter whether your schedule is full or empty. You see the people around you in their brokenness that brings you back to your brokenness where you met with God, where God met you with his hesed that always pursues you. As you wait for your computer to boot up, it's no longer something to complain about. It's a chance to step back from what's going on and spend a few minutes or more with your father. 
I've become convinced that this is the secret to the Christian life. In your brokenness, recognize that God loves you unconditionally and without reservation. And as you pursue that love in your life, your life will change and become more useful than you could ever imagine. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.